All right, well, good morning to both rooms. Again, as we come together for the, the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. Go ahead and turn there now. And we're in week nine of our reading plan. And uh, it has been a joy to continue to walk with you as you walk in the Word. And then you tell me, hey, we're walking in the Word together. And then we come and preach uh, through, the pa- through uh, whatever passages that we've assigned for the week. So if you're new here, he- here's what we're doing. Starting in January, we have a reading plan five days out of seven days in which we're reading together. So for instance, in your bulletin on the back here, you see the readings for the week of March 12. And then uh, we've assigned a passage to preach next week and Lord willing, uh, we'll be preaching there. And so every week the people of God are reading, whether it's husbands and wives or with your families and your D groups and your life groups, whatever it is. And it is a joy to hear about you reading. I get so excited. So for instance, this Friday, let me give you an example. This Friday at dinner with some folks, and one of the uh, one of the ladies said, "Hey, we're going through the reading plan. We're having a great time with it." And my and a, and a lady down the street, a neighbor, she's not a Baptist. It's okay if they read the Bible if they're not a Baptist. Amen. So she's not a Baptist, but she's reading. And I'm like, hallelujah, that is phenomenal, that is great. So God's just doing it in different ways where the word of God is seeping in. So keep up the great work. Catch up when you can, uh, jump in when you can. Uh, Look, there is no sense of guilt or legalism in this thing. This is you are entering into the word of God to find relationship with the guy, with the author who wrote it. And so continue to do it. If you need a journal, these journals, I think they're now brown uh, copies or brown uh, covers for those journals. We have them in the Connection Center. They're $5. So go ahead and grab one of those. You can get the reading plan online as well. There's an app for all kinds of tools to help you walk in the word with us. So now, uh, Kristen Madden, come on up, Kristen. This is Kristen She, As I said, her and Gray, um, man, they, they just not only have a heart for foster care awareness. But as I said in hour one, this couple has lived it out. They have modeled it. We watched them walk through it. And so what a joy to have Kristen here, her husband's gray sitting out here. She's going to read for, from Exodus chapter 32, verses one through six. So will you stand please in both rooms out of respect and reverence for the word of God this morning as Kristen leads us uh, in Exodus 32. All right, Kristen, go ahead. That Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Thank you, Kristen. You may be seated. And may the Lord bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. When I have this picture of what we just read, a a golden calf, I couldn't help but think about it. Last week, as I was uh, watching 
uh, television on Sunday evening, and the Oscars were on. And um, I don't watch the Oscars and the Tonys and the Emmys and the ESPYs and whatever else there is. I watch them for about 15 minutes, rather. But I, I can never finish because I want to see the, the monologue at the beginning of it. So this past week was Jimmy Kimmel. And, and I want to hear what they have to say about the movies to see if I need to catch up and, and watch one of the movies. And, and I also love to hear what Hollywood thinks of American culture. And you can get it in about 10 or 15 minutes, and I'm done. I'm out. I, I don't do anything else after that. But next to Jimmy Kimmel is this big golden image. And here's a picture of it on the screen. And it is um, a picture of the Oscar trophy. And this is awarded, obviously, to the best actor, the best actress, the best supporting actor and actress, producers, directors, best movie, all of that. And, and this statue is given to the one to signify that, that you are the best, that you've reached this certain level of status, this certain level of significance, this certain level of satisfaction in your, in your own craft. And so when they give the trophy, it's not so much the trophy that they're after, but it's the, the heart behind it. I mean, the trophy is, is okay, right? It, it would be nice if you're an actor or an actress to have it in your living room. I understand that. It's about a foot tall, 13 inches tall, weighs about eight and a half pounds. They cover it 24 karat gold. That's fine. That's fine. But it's not so much the trophy that they're after. It's what? the pursuit of their heart that finally gets what they long for. Personal satisfaction, cultural status, cultural significance. They're going to be on the news. They're going to be on TV. They're going to get the, they're going to get the new contract. They're going to get the new, the new film. They're going to get the new movie. The director is going to get paid more money. They're going to have cultural significance, personal satisfaction. They're going to achieve a status they've never had before because of the pursuit of their heart. And they finally get it when they announce their name and they walk up on stage and they hold the trophy. Now, in Exodus chapter 32, the people make a golden calf. Aaron makes a golden calf, rather. And what's behind this trophy, what's behind this, this symbol, it's not so much the golden calf itself as it is a symbol of the hearts of the people who are bent in to get what they want. And this is what an idol is. An idol is when we worship anything but God. And our hearts as human beings, this is just how we are wired. John Calvin said this, that the human heart is an idol-making factory. The mind begets an idol, and the hand gives it birth. And this is what happens in our hearts as we pursue the things that we desire, whether it's security, whether it's status, whether it's significance in life, our hearts are bent inward to pursue what we want and put that thing in the place of God. And the people do this in a very, very symbolic way. In Exodus chapter 32, here, here's where we are. Seven weeks out of the Red Sea, or out of uh, Egypt, rather, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. 
God has given them bread. God has given them water miraculously. God is, is leading them further and further and further down. The cloud and the fire go before them further and further down the Sinai Peninsula, and they finally get to Mount Sinai. And last week, Dr. Fant from North Greenville led us in the Ten Commandments and what that means, and, and God actually speaking to the people. And then when Moses comes down, and, and, or when Moses comes to the people and says, have you heard what God has said? Do you affirm what God has said? The people said, yeah, 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 yeah. We affirm what God has said. And it's a beautiful thing. And Moses says, okay, I'm going to go back up the mountain then. And he goes back up for 40 days. And while he's there for 40 days and nights, then this story takes place. And the people's hearts suddenly become more attached to something else than the provision of God. They're more dependent on themselves than they are on God. And this is what idolatry is. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I, I want to look at this story, not from an Old Testament, uh, old Sunday school perspective where we, we kind of have, you know, we, we, we kind of know the story really, really well. And, we, and Aaron hasn't led well. Moses, all of that. And we'll get to that because we want to go through the text. But here's what we want to do. We want to make sure that this Old Testament story has application for us today because the reality is every single one of us deals with idols. Every single one of us has a heart that makes idols that we pursue. It's just what we do. And so what I want to do is divide the sermon into three parts this morning. Number one, the roots of idolatry, the definition and roots of idolatry. Number two, the results, what happens when idolatry takes place. And then number three, the remedy, the remedy, the roots, the results, and the remedy. Now, I have a lot of notes today, more notes than I normally do. And some of you are note takers and you're ready to go. All right. You're looking your chops. Some of you haven't woken up because you, you're just last night wasn't good with daylight savings time. Right. So, so I want you to write. I want you to stay awake. Use your journal. I want you to use your, your iPhone or whatever it is that you have. All right. And I'm going to lead us through this. I'm going to try and stick to the script. But I believe God wants to speak to our church this morning in a, in a number of different ways. And so stay with me. All right, you ready? Number one, the definition and root causes of idolatry. Here's what an idol is. An idol is whatever or whomever or wherever we find satisfaction and security outside of God. Whoever's doing the screen notes, first hour, you did a phenomenal job in helping lead our people. So let's continue keep those notes up there. The definition of idol, whatever or whomever or wherever you find satisfaction and you find security apart from God. Now let's keep going. Tim Keller, who is probably the leading modern day pastor, theologian, who has kind of captured this idea of modern-day idols and books like Reason for God and Counterfeit Gods, which I highly recommend. Here's what Tim, Tim Keller says. Anything, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that when you lose it, listen, your life would feel hardly worth living, utterly empty and desperate. It also takes up such a, a big portion of your heart 
that your passion, your energy, your emotions, and your finances will go to it without a second thought. Just like me and North Carolina basketball last night, staying up in the middle of the night, having to preach this morning. Without a second thought, I'm staying up till midnight watching the game, right? This is what an idol is. All those things, value, significance. If I lose it, what's going to happen? I have to find, I must have it, whatever it is. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Idols take on different forms and shapes. What does it look like? Well, an idol can be very tangible. Think of the American dream. Very tangible things that we want, things that we collect, homes that we buy, car, whatever it is. Those are the, I, just, I put the American dream in there because we, we kind of flow down the stream of American culture and the church just kind of goes with it sometimes and it's nothing but idol worship sometimes. It can be invisible. It can be a reputation. It can be recognition that you want. It can be an identity that you craft and you guard and you manicure and you shape and you don't want that identity to be rattled at all. It can be relational. It can be how you're treated. You can rise and fall based on how people treat you, whether, whether they praise you, they lift, they lift you up, or whether they, 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 they kick you around. You, you rise and, and fall in how you're treated. Parents, our children can be our idols. We can worship our children. I'd never do that. Think of the time and energy and resources and emotional investment that you put into them above God. It can happen. It can be religious or moral. It can be a religious behavior that, that says I've achieved a certain particular spiritual status because of the way I, I, I behave in church, what, the things I do, the places I serve, the, the trips I go on, the attendance and all that. It's, there's this sense of spiritual elitism that we can be captured by that and want that and live off that and think that somehow we are connected to God, but we're more connected to our activity than we are to God himself. And, and religious activity can be an idol. It can be social or political. Do you know why people on, on talk radio get so mad at each other? What people on, on, on cable TV, people on the internet, whatever. You know where, where this whole thing with politics comes in and people get so upset? It's because we're worshiping power. We're worshiping the sense that if they don't get in power, oh no, it's going to fall apart. Whether you're left, whether you're right, whether you're middle, independent, whatever, move, social movements have such power behind them and such force and such attraction. And we can worship and we can be attracted to and put all our energy in a political movement, a political person, a political power, instead of relying and depending upon God. And God just stands back and he looks at it and he says, listen, are you more concerned about a movement or power than you are about me? Now, certainly God speaks to those things. Absolutely he does. All of these things can be idols in some form or some fashion. We all have them. I told the first hour, driving to church this morning, I said, okay, I'm going to name idols. <laughs> and I got to three, and I quit. <laughs> got discouraged. Pulled in the parking lot. I got three. Got three in mind. Right now, as I preach this, I'm going to have to take these notes home, and this week, I'm going to have to apply it to these, to these idols. There's probably more. What's your idol? 
You got one. We all do, because that's what human hearts do. Tim Keller says this, that everybody worships something. My D group this past week, as we went through passage, one of the guys said, um, came to this passage, and he said, you know what, I realize this. I'm going to worship something. <laughs> it's a matter of who or what, but I'm, I'm worshiping something. We all do. Here's what Keller says. Thus, every person, religious or not, is worshiping something, idols, pseudo-saviors, to get their worth. Listen, stay with me. But these things enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them, or anger if someone blocks them from us, if someone gets in the way of us getting what we want. Sometimes we're angry. That's why Keller says, you want an idol check? Check your emotions. When do you get most emotionally out of control? That's probably an idol, he says. Or fear. Fear. When you get afraid and you clam up, it's because you're threat, your, your idol is threatened, whatever that might be. Or driven, because we have to have them. Guilt, anger, fear, and drivenness are like fire that destroys us. Sin is worshiping anything but Jesus, and the wages of sin is slavery. One New York pastor said this, idols are slave traders disguised as abolitionists. They claim to give you the freedom you long for, the satisfaction, the, the sense of, of significance and value and identity, but they're really slave traders. So we come to our text this morning, and here's what we want to do. In the text, here are the, the, the three roots of idolatry. Look at it again. Exodus chapter 32, when the people, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So here they are. Moses has gone up the mountain. And here's the first root, at least in our text, there could be other roots of idolatry in the scriptures. But from, from the text, here are three. Number one, impatience. They were impatient because they saw Moses go up the mountain. He delayed in coming. Where is he? What's he doing? We don't know how he's leading us. Give us a golden calf. Give us something to, that our hearts can kind of be more secure. And they were impatient. And not only impatient timing-wise, this is how we know that we're going we're gonna to move towards an idol is if we get impatient, we get, we, we get kind of skittish and we're trying to make, make something happen really, really quickly. But then secondly, insecurity. Insecurity. They're insecure. Make us a God that will what? Who, who will go before us. Go before us. So, so not only are they impatient, not only with the timing, with the method. They don't know what Moses is doing. We, we see that when they get out in the wilderness and, and they don't have food and they complain and Moses says, call on God. When they get the Red Sea, they're always questioning. Moses, what are you, we're not quite sure. They're impatient, but then they're insecure. We need something that signals this is our God. This is what we can see tangibly to go before us. And when we get insecure and impatient, particularly in a crisis, then our hearts run to the things that are that can become our idols. Third, disconnected. They're disconnected. They say um, at the end of verse one, as for this Moses, 
the man who brought us up out of Egypt. Um, I like what one commentator said. The man didn't bring him out of Egypt. God brought him out of Egypt. They're disconnected from God. I mean, God is the one who unleashed the plagues and freed them and brought them to the Red Sea and, and, and parted the Red Sea. And I'm sitting here scratching my head as I read this. Have they forgotten all this? And, and then they, they don't have bread and, and God gives them manna. They don't have water and, and Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. And, and then God speaks to them from, the, from this mountain. I mean, this is powerful. This is huge. This is, this is don't bring the animals near. Have, have the priests wash their clothes. Don't come near. And God thunders powerfully out of this mountain and the people bow and worship God. And Moses goes up, and how many days? I don't know. He's up there 40 days. Is it day 5, 10, 15, 20? I don't know. But they finally go, ah, let, uh, this guy has led us out here. We don't know where he is. He's out to lunch. Where's it? Uh, and, and so let's make up our own idol, our own God. And it's easy. It's easy to get disconnected from God, particularly when we think we are a spiritual religious people. Look at verse seven, or sorry, verse two. Look at verse two. So Aaron says to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. It's important. And made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. The people said this. The people said this. These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, today shall be a feast to whom? To the golden calf of Egypt, to the golden calf of Canaan. Nope, nope. Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? To the Lord. What? What? And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Wait, that's what they were supposed to do to, to God. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. All right, so let's transition. Number two, those are the roots of idolatry. Now the results of idolatry. And the results are simply this. Idols corrupt our hearts. Letter A, idols deceive us when mixed with just enough religion. Okay, so here's, here's what some commentators believe about this golden calf. Some believe that when they say these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt, they're familiar with the gods of Canaan. They're familiar with the gods of Egypt. I was walking through uh, an Egyptian, an exhibit uh, on e- Egyptian culture, and, and there were these little trinkets that um, they've recovered. And these little trinkets are um, many of them are animals, like hippopotamuses, frogs. Cat, I didn't know this. Um, cats. Cats were revered in Egypt. Did you know that? Fluffy at home in Egypt would have been a god, right, or a goddess. In fact, they had these penalties. It said, the little thing, the little sign said that you, there would be penalties if you harmed a cat. Now, some of you dog lovers are like, I know now why God sent 10 plagues. He was going to pound those cats into non-existence, Right. But they had, they had these little trinkets, and so they're familiar with the gods around them. They, they understand that they, these symbols are there to connect with the gods that will help them. And so when they come out, Aaron says, give me your earrings, give me your jewelry. So they're pulling off these things, and they're, and they're dropping it in. But Aaron, did you notice what, he's, what he does when the people say, these are the gods that have brought us out? Aaron builds an altar. He doesn't build an altar to God. He builds an altar for this golden calf. 
And he says, here's a feast to the Lord. And some commentators say, you know what? The, pe the people might be thinking about the gods that brought them out of Egypt and maybe, maybe one of these gods that they recognize in Canaan is what they're giving homage to and worship to. But others say, uh-uh, uh-uh, here's what they're doing. Here's what they're doing. They're mixing the, the, the religion. They're mixing what God has already told them to do. They're, they're making a graven image, which is against the Ten Commandments, and saying, this is the image of Yahweh. This is who Yahweh is. And, and so it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When Aaron goes, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Yahweh's image. Let's build an altar. Let's do a feast. And they have this incredible party. It's, it's filled with all kinds of sexual promiscuity and eating and drinking and all these things. It just gets out of control. It's nowhere near what God had intended. And the bottom line is this. The people are deceived because they are mixing religion with the idols of their own hearts. We can do that. We can say we've been followers of Jesus for a long, long time. We, we are members of such and such church. We, we attend, we give, we serve, we whatever. For some of you, long-time church members like me, it's easy just to get up and go, I'm okay with God, and pursue the idol of my heart, whatever it is, but then come to church and kind of alongside singing together and worshiping together, it sits my idol. <laughs> and I, I deceive myself if I think that I'm okay. Letter B, result. Idols replace God's glory with cheap imitations. Verse eight, read with me. The Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Here it is. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made themselves this golden calf, and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they're the ones who said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, God's upset. And he says to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked, it is stubborn. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God, it says in one of the scripture passages in Exodus, is a jealous God. And he is jealous, not in a bad way, like you're jealous over your boyfriend or your girlfriend. He's jealous because the most important thing to him is his glory and his name. And when he calls the people to himself, he wants his glory to be in front of them. And when we make idols, here's what we do. We take God's glory, we exchange it for a cheap imitation. And God is so angry. He's like, Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out. All of them. They're, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be, I'm going to start with you. And we're going to do this again. And Moses intercedes. Look at verse 11. Look at your text. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, God, from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring to the, as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented, verse 14, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here's letter C. Here's what idols do. Idols 
detour, take us off track, or sabotage, take us out completely, of our place in the story that God is writing. You see what Moses is doing in this section here? God's saying, they're stealing my glory. But then Moses says, God, I want you to see something that your story has to keep going. I mean, he goes all the way back to Father Abraham and Isaac. We've been reading in Genesis. He goes all the way back to them and to the promises made to this one man and his family. And, and he reminds them, God, you made a promise to them that, that you would raise up this family and then they would come through Egypt all the way back in Genesis. Early in Genesis, God said, I'll put them in Egypt and they're going to grow as a mighty nation. God, you did that. And then you sprung them out of Egypt and here they are in the wilderness. You gave your word. You've given your law. We understand what we're supposed to do now. And we're on our way to the promised land. You promise. Your story is this. Now we're going to go to the promised land. And from that, all all these blessings are going to come. And now the golden calf stands in the way. The golden calf is going to detour us. The golden calf is going to wipe them out unless you have mercy on the people. And this is what our idols do. Listen, you think you can live with your idol, but you can't. It's eventually like decay on your heart. It's going to wear it down. It's going to slow it down until finally you get to the point where the doctor is going to go, your heart needs help. You can't keep going like this. It's either going to detour you and it's going to sabotage you out of the incredible story God is writing for you. And then letter D, here's what idols do. Idols bring judgment and punishment and correction. We don't have time to go through it, but man, whoo, God is angry at him. And he relents and says, okay, Moses, when Moses goes down the mount, he sees the party that's going on down there. He sees all the sexual activity that's going on down there. He sees the golden calf. He takes those tablets. He breaks them. He comes to the golden calf. He burns it and he puts it in their water and he says, drink it. Moses takes on the characteristics of the judgment of God on the people. You drink it. And then later on, he, he, he says to the, um, to the people, okay, standing in the gate, who is on the Lord's side? Raise your hand. Who's on the Lord's side? You come with me. The Levites, sons of Levi said, yeah, we're on the Lord's side. They come over here. And he says, okay, judgment has come. The Lord has said, you kill 3,000 men. Can you imagine that day? Civil war. Neighbor against neighbor. 3,000 men. And then verse 35, God sends a plague. You, listen, you don't think idols, you don't think idols bring punishment and correction, but they do. They do. And God longs for his people to worship him and him alone. Not to be detoured. And judgment will come upon us as a people. Judgment will come upon me as a person if I stand before God and I entertain and worship anything that keeps me away from his story, worship anything that takes his glory away from him. Here's how this works in a very practical way. A couple of ways. Um, foster care awareness. I love this issue because it really is from our people here who have a passion to, to see kids reach. But, but really, this is, this is a matter of the heart. This is a matter of idolatry. This is a matter of saying, oh, I, I'm more comfortable. I am more certain. 
I care more about my checking account and my kids and the route that they're on to get to where they need to go. Maybe another season, maybe another time, but I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm certain and I'm satisfied with where I am. And God might be speaking to some of you and saying, you've worshiped at that idol long enough. It's time to step out in faith and reach out to a boy or to a girl or with your resources or in a way in which you break free of being enslaved by your comfort and your family and what it looks like. And instead, you step into my story for these kids. You step into my glory in faith. Maybe that's some of you. Incredible issue. I love what God is doing through the people here at Taylor's. You need to be a part. Here's another way. Our worship services. There's a there's a great reminder on the back of our bulletin about our worship services coming up in a in a couple of weeks. April one, Easter Sunday. Unbelievable. Here it comes. And what we've done, if you're new to Taylor's or if you've forgotten, let me refresh your memory. We have three different styles of worship: traditional service, a modern service, and a contemporary service. And we we are going to join together in just one style of worship for two hours at nine and at ten thirty in the worship room. So it's a lot of change. A lot of change. it's a lot of change for everybody. We've asked some life groups, some of the older life groups, to to change hours so that they can jump into one of the services where where the demographics and where the generations are represented. We asked some of the younger life groups to come down and to to move into the older service so that we can see we can just see the body of Christ. We can be unified together, but we can see the differences that are there in ages and, and rejoice in that and be unified in that. It's a beautiful thing. But he, here's what can happen. Gang, and it can happen to every single one of us. We can make our worship and our religious preference a style, a form of music, whether or not I wear a tie, whether or not the choir wears robes, whether or not the organ is played, or whether or not I'm in this room in the modern service, whether or not the band is leading or the choir is leading. Here's what can happen, gang. We can get so wrapped up into this sense of the worship service is my preference, and I am captured by that, and I long for that. And look, don't get me wrong. There are many, many people who say, man, we're excited. We're we're ready to go. This is exciting. We've been waiting for this. We've been praying for it. There's some, but there's some of you who is it's tough. It's tough, and you're just waiting, and you're just waiting, and you're just saying, okay, I'm gonna see what I'm gonna see what it's like. And what, what you're saying is I'm gonna see what it's like because I'm gonna see whether or not I can stand it. And I can see whether or not I, I can deal with it, or it's gonna appeal to me, or whatever it is. Here, here's my challenge to you. Here's my challenge: that don't let your religious worship preference, be an idol that you hang on to. God wants your worship, your whole heart, regardless of what it looks like. And listen, the guys are going to do it phenomenally well. They're going to do it amazingly well. But for some of you, some of you, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Some of you are going to, oh, that's it. I'm out of here. That's the last straw. For some of you, you're going to go and, uh, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot. But you know what? I'm going to give it two weeks. I'm going to give it two weeks max, and I am done. Some of you, man, I'm going to go through the summer and see what happens. You know what? Listen, listen. God will lead you as you're, as you're truly following him. But here's what I'm saying to you. 
from the word of God this morning, and I believe from the Holy Spirit to challenge us. Taylor's First Baptist Church, worship is not about a room or a musical style. Worship is about encountering the living God together as a people. And the people come together, and we see one another, we love one another, and we're unified together. We expect to hear from God. That's what worship is. That's what we long for. We pray, we pray that God begins to loosen and God begins to soften hearts where you say, I'm in. For the body of Christ, I'm in. For what God is doing here, I'm in. Life groups, some of you have been asked to move rooms. I would just simply appeal to you, challenge you to say, to, to see the bigger picture. Just don't see how long you've been in that particular room. Just don't see the, the, the culture that you've created in your life group. See the bigger picture of the body of Christ and how that's simply saying, we will, we, yes, pastor, yes, we, we, we will switch so that the generations can be represented. Yes, pastor, we see something bigger here, and that is encountering the living God together. And we're going to set aside. Some of you need to step up and just say, you know what? We are going to set aside whatever our, our premonition is, whatever our thought was, and we're coming in with a new attitude. An attitude that's not shaped by an idol that says it has to be this way, but instead is saying, I am walking in that room. I'm coming to a new life group hour to worship and encounter God with the people of God. That's why I'm here. And that's my heart for you guys. Let me me give you another example of what it means for the body of Christ. Genesis, or Exodus rather, 30, 35 or 36. You get to verse one and God has, has ordained the guys that are gonna be fashioning the temple and the sanctuary and all the pieces. And, and if you keep reading, you keep reading. It's pretty powerful. I about came out of my seat when I, when I read it. And, and they start bringing... Uh, their, their, whatever they need for the temple. So it could be goat's hair, it could be earrings, it could be gold, it could be silver, copper, whatever. And they start, Mo, Moses said, hey, hey, God's going to meet with us. Here's our worship. The holy God wants to encounter us and your sins, there's this altar and you're going to come before the presence of God. Your sins are going to be forgiven and you're going to meet with God. He's going to give us instruction and he's going to give us his presence. And you know what? This God for this tabernacle, when God, when the cloud moves, we're going with him. We're going with him. So this is an important place where we meet God. So let's go. We're all in. So here comes the people. Here comes the people where they go, okay, we're in, Moses. You got to be kidding me. (laughs) That wasn't Moses, by the way. Might have been the Lord. I might want to check that. I don't know. Slow down, right? Yeah, Roy Williams, that's right. (laughs) Where was I? Wow. We're in. Thank you. And the people start giving stuff. No capital campaign. <laughs> no sermon series. Hey, pastor, you need another sermon series. I'm giving. Well, maybe I do. I don't see no sermon series there, though. No little emails sent out to prompt you. 
Pastor not get putting on the screen the stats. I've done that before, and we do it again. I promise you, it'll probably come. It's when Moses said, God is going to meet with us, and he's going to forgive your sin, and he's going to lead you. And they start giving. It says their hearts were stirred. I don't know how many times their hearts were stirred. Their hearts were moved. There was generosity, and they start giving. And, and, the, and, the, and the, um, uh, the contractors come to Moses, head, head, of, head of the site. Hey, Moses, can, can we come in and see you? Yeah, absolutely. Come on in. The people are given enough. We don't need any more. What? What? Tell them to stop giving. We, we don't know what to do with it. Moses goes running out. Hey, people, stop giving. You're giving way too. Can you believe that if your pastor came to you one day and said, hey, gang, please, we don't need your money anymore. Just keep it. All right, find some other place to give it. Is this a guilt trip? It's not a guilt trip. This is a people who have been freed to pursue the presence of God. And their hearts are no longer shackled because they see what's ahead. That is what I long for you. Every single one of you, in your home, in your marriage, in your church, to be free. Real quickly, the remedy, three, three things. I'll, I'll just list them out. I'll just list them out. Number one, number one, stop the blame game. How do we deal with this? Exodus chapter 32, verse 21, Moses comes to Aaron and says, what in the world are you doing? What does Aaron say? You know the people, oh, the people are not good for a preacher to do this. You know the people, they're all evil, they're all bad, and they told me to do this. And then he says, did you get this? Did you read this? He says, and I put the fire, I started the fire, and they gave me the gold, their earrings, and a calf just, whoop, just popped out. There it is, right? It reminded me of the, the laughing emoji. You know what I'm talking about? When I, when I saw that, that was the first thing that came to my mind. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. That's crazy. But here's what Aaron's doing. It's the oldest trick in the book. It's when our hearts pursue the idols that we long for. Hey, Adam and Eve. Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, you sin. You, you long for this this fruit, you long for life, you long for something other than me, Adam. Well, God, you gave me the woman, and Eve is the one the first, okay? Eve, oh, God, you gave me the serpent, he, or the serpent came in and tempted me. Aaron, oh, it's the people. Oh, if they weren't so evil. Oh, the fire, whoo, just, man, flew right out of there. What a beautiful calf, though, isn't it? Blaming everything. Here is, here is where you got to begin with your eyes. Stop blaming other people. Paul Tripp said this, great quote, anyone who is able to convince himself that the biggest problems in his life are on the outside, not inside, will have little interest in God's grace. Man, I've had to learn this over and over again because I'm so quick in the pursuit of my idols to say, if only, if only that, 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 that. Stop blaming others and look inside. Secondly, secondly, weigh the cost of your idol against the worth of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, flee idolatry, run from it. I'm trying to be incredibly practical here. How do I see, how do I envision this? And I thought, you know what? In my mind, I want to picture a scale and on this side, here's my idol. Here's what it is. I'm just going to put it on this side of the scale. But then I'm going to put Jesus on this side of the scale. I'm just going to have that picture in front of me. What is worth more? 
The creator, king, savior, rescuer, redeemer, controller of the universe or my idol? Which one weighs more? And when I see the worth of Christ, when I see a sacrifice, oh, I run to Christ. Lastly, run to the intercessor. Run from your idol. Flee, it says, for Corinthians 10, to the intercessor. Moses is an incredible intercessor. Praise to God. Jesus is the new intercessor. He's the new high priest. He's the one that comes in front of the Father says, Father, I've given up my life for them. And if we look to Christ and we look to the cross and we look to what he has paid for us, then our idols and our attraction and our distraction and our significance and our value goes away because we see ourselves as sinners. We don't see ourselves as fully capable of living as good lives as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. And we run to the intercessor and we say to him, will you plead for me? That's what Moses did for the people. Some of you this morning, maybe it's pleading for Christ to intervene in your, your life for the very first time. You, you just don't need, you, you just don't need surgery to, to take out the decay around the heart. You need a brand new heart. A transplant where you give your life to Christ. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm just going to lead us in a, a time of prayer up here and and close both, both rooms out, and then Kevin and Scott will take it from there, how they see fit. But, but I, I just feel led to say, you know what? We're three weeks away from this worship change. We're, we're three weeks away from a new day. Why not call us as people to pray and just to say, here, here, here are the idols. Here are the idols at Taylor's I've hung on to. Here's the event. Here's the person. Here's the place, here's the experience, here's the, here's the worship style, here's the room, here's whatever. And I'm not going to be the one to hold us back. I'm going to give myself entirely to Christ this morning. So will you pray with me right now in both rooms? In both rooms, I'm going to kneel here. And I'm going to give you just a minute or two, just a minute or two to pray to seek the Lord. This is your time where you just say, Father, I need the forgiveness of Jesus. Name your idol. Name it. Pour out your complaint and your trouble before the Lord, the psalmist says. Tell them this is how this idol has shackled me and enslaved me. Look at Christ. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his life, his death, his resurrection. Look at his example. He was tested. He was tempted just like you are, but yet without sin. He will make a way, it says, to escape. Look to Christ and find strength 
Father, help your people step out in faith. To have a new heart set, a new mindset, a new way of serving, a new joy, a new outlook, a new passion for you. Father, walk with us. cloud would pick up and, and go and they would fold up the temple the tabernacle and follow the leadership of your spirit would you lead us holy spirit would you lead your body for your glory for your story in our lives and in this church for the sake of jesus and you Amen.